Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, my friend Ed Condon. Ed? Hi. Hey, how you doing, man? Fine. I was waiting. Normally, you you follow it up with a question of some kind, and so I was waiting for that. I didn't want to interrupt you. Ed? No, I got nothing. Did it not, yeah, I got, got nothing. nothing. I was going to ask you a question, but I really got nothing. Yeah. Oh, well. How are you doing? You're, you're dressed up today. Well, <laughs> I'm, I have a shirt. <laughs> I have a button-down shirt on is what you mean by you're your wearing dress-up. braces or suspenders, as Americans call them. You know, um, our standards of attire as work-from-home, mostly work-from-home journalists are not uh, what they might be if we were in an, even an office casual environment. And uh, And so I find it interesting that the fact that I have on basically a button-down shirt makes me dressed up today. But when I put this button-down shirt on this morning, I thought, man, I hate getting dressed up. So I guess um, I guess you're right. I've given up. I used to have very, very high sartorial standards. I know. I, I've given up. I wear nothing but pillar T-shirts now. I don't have it's enough. It's easier. I don't have enough. You don't have enough to pillar? I'll get you some more. I mean, I have some, but not enough to wear one every day of the week or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'll get but, you some more. Guess what? What? I believe that under my button-down shirt... Oh, you! <laughs> I'm wearing a pillar T-shirt. Yes, you are. Well done. This is not, by the way, just so everyone's clear. This is not us like doing a a kayfabe commercial for buy pillar T-shirts. No, because we don't we actually don't care if you buy the T-shirts. We we, yeah, we, we don't make any a, money off of that. So we it like giving them away. Like I like give. I love when we can give them away. And I'll tell you, last year we had this very uh, unusual experience where we were at an event and someone asked us to sign their pillar sweatshirt. I still think about that one. Um, but, uh, but we want you to have one if you want to have one. And we're very honored when we see them out in the wild. This guy, um, did we talk about this last week? This guy who said that his teenage son wears a pillar t-shirt. I, I don't think we talked about that on the we show, were, but yeah, we were, there was that guy who said that when he was a teenager, he wore t-shirts with rock band names on it. His son wore a t-shirt with the pillar logo on it, which made me. I mean, sinfully proud. There's no other. There's no. There's no other way. I. I mean, I. I get it that it's probably naff or whatever, but I don't. I don't care if the cool kids are wearing pillar T-shirts. That, you know what? I've never been cool in my entire life. And what is that word you just said? Naff. Uh, naff. It is a. I suppose it's a British colloquialism. It Clearly means sort of you know gauche, it. vulgar. Oh, okay. Um, in poor taste. Okay. Not now offensively I- so, but in a sort of you know. Uh, you just now when I you know, Google it, Google tells me that it's a it's a um, Google tells me that its principal de- definition is as a verb, um, which means to go away. Like I might tell someone to naff off. You can do that, although I, I that is primarily used only as a sort of um, substitute word for another verb that is often used. Oh, I see. The, the secondary definition off. though is indeed an adjective meaning lacking taste or style. Yes. Okay. Well, speaking of NAF things, Ed, um, we have uh, two things we want to talk about today. Uh, we want to talk about, um, I want to talk about the transfer of Bishop Jeffrey Montfortin from the Diocese of Steubenville to the uh, Office of Auxiliary Bishop in the uh, Archdiocese of Detroit, and uh, what that means and why I think that's interesting and significant and important. Um, but before we do that, um, you want to talk about a recent development in the financial trial of the Holy See, and uh, and I and I would like for you to do that. All right, I I, I accept your challenge. I know what's going on here. You're uh, what's going you're on? giving me first crack on the grounds that you think I won't be able to spin this into a real conversation, and we can dispense with it quickly. But I I know that sometimes when we talk about Vatican finances, 
I know this is true for a lot of people. There are a lot of people out there, at, myself included to some extent, there are a lot of people out there who appreciate that the Vatican financial trial is extremely important. And I think I can discuss it with uh, with some degree of uh, intelligence and aptitude. And, and, and I think I'm a relatively informed news reader when it comes to the Vatican finance trial. Arguably, I'm even a news producer when it comes to the Vatican finance trial. But I... Um, I sometimes, you know, the trial, as with any trial, has its ups and downs and twists and turns and topsies and turvies. And uh, and I sometimes um, am not sure exactly what the takeaways from those should be or what the broader implications should be or what they say about things that are happening in the life of the church or other things that I should be, uh, like what I should extrapolate or, or what meaning I should draw from them. So that's where I always find myself sort of falling down if I'm, if I'm being perfectly candid. I, I, that's not unreasonable. I have and some I sort think- of meta sense that the Vatican finance trial is a good sign of emerging financial accountability in the life of the church. But, um, but I also see a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of issues there. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's very reasonable to be confused by the Vatican financial trial. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem for that, no, I would say a lot of the problem, a lot of the responsibility for that lies at the door of the promoter of justice's office for Vatican city, the public prosecution. Um, they have done and this is my this is my professional dispassionate opinion um they've done an appalling job of making the case uh they've made a series of procedural errors they've made a series of evidentiary errors they've made a series of um, prosecutorial errors that i think it's right to leave people wondering what the heck is going on and every time they you know every time they balls things up it it leaves people with an honest question about well is there actually a case to answer here and i think that's fair and i think part of the you know one of the biggest problems is of course the the indictment as far as i'm concerned that's that's a mess in itself because no reasonable person i think would look at the 500 page indictment file that they dropped in july of 2021 um filing all of the charges against the 10 defendants and say this all hangs together this is all evidence of one big continuous conspiracy um it's not. I mean, it's not. There's there there are things in there that I think you probably can make a very strong case that they happened, and you can make a very strong case that they are illegal in Vatican law. Um, but I think trying to join them up and say this is part of one overarching conspiracy, I think, is is very hard to do, if not impossible. And I don't think the evidence is there for that. And so I think they've fallen down on that on a number of occasions. I don't think these ten people should be being tried together. I think that's crazy i think why do you think that happened well there's no i should just say it the occam's razor answer to that is because alessandro didi who is the chief prosecutor of the vatican city state has a flair for the dramatic and likes to be at the middle of the biggest ring in the biggest circus Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of sort of Burbling hype around the investigation and everything else leading up to him filing charges in the first place. And there was, I think, a lot of perceived pressure by him that he had to come out with a big bang. He had to wow the world with what he'd found. He had to really show that this was not, he hadn't gone after some, you know, little niggling technical possible financial irregularities. He had to show there was a big conspiracy here. And and I, I think part of that was aimed at the press. Part of that was aimed at the sort of general curial ecosphere 
around the Vatican, who I, which I think it's fair to say is culturally resistant to things like prosecution of corruption. And I think he also was trying to show off to the Pope. I think he was trying to say, you, you know, you gave me the, the warrant to go and investigate all this stuff. And he wanted to drop a big old, you know, dead bird at his feet and say, look what I brought you. You know, I did it. Hooray me. But the problem is that's, you know, filing a 500 page indictment is cute. Um, but you think got to make it stick. And, and like I said, there's a lot of charges in here that make compelling reading for criminal action. You know, there's the Enrico Crasso, who's a former investment advisor for the Vatican Secretary of State. You know, he he got him to invest millions of dollars in a project for a highway in South Carolina that didn't even exist. Like, it, I mean, now, that's have you just- ever been able to dig deeper on that? What's going? What What's the fullest story on that? Oh, the, that one was very very simple. There was. Um, basically a BS investment prospectus that was put up at the secretary of state saying, give us however many millions and here's the investment portfolio that's going to go into. And the sort of, you know, big banner one was this highway that was going to be built in the Carolinas and just didn't exist. And none of the companies affiliated with it existed. Like there was no highway project. There was no highway. There was never going to be one. And then actually what the investment company did put the money into was equity stakes in three Italian companies. So it was it was basically just taking investment money under false pretenses. Uh, I, and that was like, again, that the evidence for that is like right there lined up. I mean, it's buried in 500 pages of documents, but it's not hard to to piece that together. But trying to link that to the Vatican's investments with Raffaele Mincioni in London that led to the purchase of the London building and trying to connect that with Cardinal Becciu's sending money to family members in Sardinia, like none of that stuff is linked, at least not that I can see. And trying to charge all, you know, this entire sort of Jackson Pollock painting of financial corruption as one big, you know, there, there's, you know, if you look hard enough, there's, you know, there's a, there's a plot, there's, you know, it all, it's all linked together. I don't think it is. I, I mean, what I think we have is this, you know, massive paint splatter of financial corruption, which is, I think, a pretty good representation of how business was done at the Secretary of State for a very, very, very long period of time. Uh-huh. But you know that doesn't mean you can. It's easy to prosecute that way. Um, so I, I think that's why people have a lot of confusion in following the Vatican financial trials because I think a lot of people have the understanding. Well, this trial is about this London building, right? It's like, well, yeah, that's what kicked off the investigation. That was the sort of you know um, patient X of this whole financial scandal. Yeah. But that's by no means what the actual trial is about. Now it's much much bigger than that, and. If people keep trying to run individual sort of vignettes of what's going on in the trial and what's being charged through the reference point of this one deal in London, then you know it doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why I think people have a hard time following it. But that is prologue to what has happened this week. What mm-hmm. happened? Um, we're recording this on Thursday. What happened yesterday on Wednesday? Um, so at the end of July, the uh, the the prosecution rested. Effectively, yeah, it was the end of their time. They they were done. They presented their final arguments. They put in their requests for sentencing in the event of conviction. They wanted like a total of seventy three years in jail yeah. and hundreds of millions of euros in seized assets and restitution in the event of convictions and all of this stuff and fine and dandy. They went on summer recess and now it's going to be effectively um, final arguments by the defense from here until December. At which mm-hmm. point, I think December sixth is when it's currently scheduled. Yeah. Now, when you say from the defense, don't you really mean from the defense is? Because aren't the various defendants trying to 
trying to segregate themselves? I mean, doesn't every defendant want to segregate himself from this broad conspiracy narrative as much as is humanly possible? Yeah. I mean, they all have different legal teams and they're all taking very different legal strategies. Cardinal Betchew is there every day with his lawyers sort of, you know, banging the table and expostulating in fury when everyone suggests he might be a criminal, which is mm-hmm. you know, why he's on trial. It's because yeah. people think he's possibly a criminal. Um, but other people just have no showed the trial um, and said, we don't recognize the court. We don't recognize the jurisdiction. We're not playing any part of this. Other people have, you know, hired good, good lawyers, got a good legal team. And they're, they're trying to sort of forensically fight the actual details of like, well, look, you've accused me of, you know, fraud and embezzlement through these financial deals. Well, let's walk through the minutia of how those deals worked and see where the legality and illegality is. And, mm-hmm. you know, the prosecutor's like, no, it is all, it is all corrupt. It is manifest corruption. It has the stink of, you know, whatever on it. It's like, well, that's, that's not helpful for anybody. Um, so, I mean, there are, you're right. There are defenses, plural, that the the court will be hearing from. Um, what I think we haven't seen so far and talking to people in and around the case, um, I, I can tell you why I think this is, but what's remarkable for a case in which 10 people are being tried simultaneously for interconnected some partly financial crimes, um, is that they're they're so far all seeming to hang together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you haven't got various defendants sort of flipping and turning states' evidence. And we sort of anticipated that that would happen towards the beginning. Well, I mean, it depends on how sort of cynical a, a look you want to give this. Um, a real cynical look would say, well, actually, this whole thing started with people who should be on trial and accused of corrupt activities, um, flipping and turning state's evidence before a charge was ever filed. I mean, Monsignor Perlaska, I mean, his own narrative, he's the sort of prosecution star witness. Um, and he was sort of Cardinal Betchew's right-hand man when Cardinal Betchew was sustituto. And he's, I mean, he's given a narrative to investigators and to prosecutors that, you know, he did he did some criminal shit. I mean, yeah. that's what he did. He's, he's, you know, he's not being prosecuted. He's basically, you know, I don't know if they haven't formally said that he's got a, an immunity agreement, but the prosecution have said, you know, well, he's been very cooperative. We're not, yeah. you know, we view him as basically an innocent tool and a pawn and all of this. And, you know, his narrative is that he did all this under orders. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he's, he's fessed up to doing some, some stuff that's just illegal, like, you know, taking tens of thousands of euros out of, church accounts, putting them in a brown envelope and handing them to your boss and having no record of where they went or what they were for. I mean, that's illegal. It's just, yeah. it is. It's, it is. Um, so, so there's him. I, I, and I've been saying this since the beginning, the beginning being sort of 2019, when we first started looking at the the London deal mm-hmm. in depth, um, that the Cardinal Betchew Sustituto Cardinal Betchew's successor as Sustituto, Archbishop Edgar Pinapara, I think has at least as many questions to yeah. answer about the Vatican financial deal as Cardinal Betchew does. Yeah. Um, and he's not on trial. He's he's appeared as a witness in the course of the trial, and he's admitted to ordering illegal or certainly extra legal um wiretaps and uh, retaliatory investigations against Vatican banking officials because they dared to say no to him when he Asked them for 150 million euros, things like that. I mean, that those are those are crimes in in Vatican City law, and he's not being charged. So, yeah. um, 
I, I guess you could say that it, it, from a certain point of view, you could say, well, a lot of them have actually turned states evidence and you know, that they're just, they're just not on trial to begin with. Um, I think part of the other problem is from what I hear around the case, the prosecution really isn't interested in doing deals with people and turning them against each other. Uh, no, which I find fascinating. It seems to be, you know, Didi's strategy here seems to be death or glory. Uh, he he doesn't seem to be interested in in sort of you know separating the defendants and siloing them and seeing if they can get them to you know turn on each other and give evidence against each other and sort of seeing what case he can build out of the best of that. He seems to be just going all in. Yeah, and I don't. It hasn't made for compelling argumentation in court from my perspective. Yeah. Um, but that's what he seems to be doing. But sorry, all of this is still prologue to what actually happened this week, which is court was back in session after the summer recess. And before the defense start making their cases, the court heard from lawyers for the IOR. Um, the Institute for the for the Works of Religion, the Vatican City's commercial bank. Yeah. yeah. They're in this case as a civil party. So it's a weird thing. And you can do this. It's a in- very weird thing that is, it adds a level. It, everything here is designed to make it ho- more difficult for Americans to follow the case. One thing after another, if there's one thing that the entire judiciary is built around, it's making it difficult for us to understand what the heck is going on. And this insertion of civil parties into the case is certainly fitting into that category, is it not? Right. But this is totally normal in European legal systems, or at least... Um, what we would call civil as opposed to common law legal systems. Yeah, it's right. not, it's, you know, yes, it's incomprehensible if you're coming from a sort of Anglo-American, Australian, Canadian understanding of, you know, British common law. Even though I'm a, even though I'm a civil lawyer, a lawyer from a civil law system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but so basically what it is, is the, the IOR, this bank in Vatican City, um, as well as the Secretary of State itself, have joined the prosecution in the case Basically, they filed lawsuits against the defendants. In the case of the Secretary of State, their own former officials and advisors. In the case of the IOR, affiliated, you know, as affiliated institutions in the Roman Curia that they say have, you know, defrauded them of money and um, damaged their reputation and things. And so, while the public prosecutors are going for criminal charges and criminal convictions and criminal punishments, the IOR and also the Secretary of State. Um, at the same time, are are arguing their their civil lawsuit against the same defendants, and it's all one case. Which again, like I said, this is you know, if you want a big case like this to fail, by all means, confuse everything. Yeah. Um. So they they made their sort of best pitch for what they would like to see happen on Wednesday, and I'm sorry, the lawyers for the IOR in an afternoon made a better case against Cardinal Betchu. Than Alessandro Didi has made in two and a half years. That's phenomenal. What what was this, tell tell us the substance of it? The substance of it is very simple. I mean, you could you could write it on the back of an envelope. You could write it in a newsletter. You could write it on the pillar, mm-hmm. um, which was simply that. Look, what we know for sure, and the documents show, is that there were these hundreds of millions of euros in funds and assets that were being kept off the Vatican ledger sheets, being leverage to produce loans from two Swiss banks, both of which now, by the way, have been shuttered by Swiss authorities for being basket cases. So great taste in you know banking there by the Secretary of State. Um, to invest in all of these things, this you know, the London building being the one that everyone knows, but all of these different projects and funds and stuff, 
And this was all off books and none of it was authorized and all of it was illegal that these, the money that they were getting was in some cases, and this is where the IOR's interest comes in, is they said some of this money that they were using, it's not Peter's pens, which, you know, the prosecutors originally alleged, even though there was no evidence for that ever. Yeah. And I could have told, I did tell them that, wrote about it several times. Um, So they had to embarrassingly drop those charges at the end of last, um, at the end of June, I think it was. But anyway. The point is, you know, some of this money was profit disbursements from the IOR. It's a profit-making institution. It's a commercial bank. It's the only commercial bank in Vatican City. And the part of that is it disperses its cut of the profits to the Pope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the in the before time, before this scandal, before this trial and everything, the Secretary of State basically managed the Pope's purse. Both Peter's pants, but also the sort of private personal discretionary accounts of the Holy Father and all this other stuff. The private discretionary accounts of the office of the Roman pontiff. The Pope presumably has a checking account. The pontiff, I do. I think this is an interesting distinction. And it plays out with Benedict because now there's some questions about Benedict's own personal inheritance. I presume that the Pope has a, the Pope, who used to be a cardinal in, in Argentina, I presume has a checking account with 20 grand in it, 25 grand in it, you know, an an ordinary sort of cleric's amount of money um, that is distinct from this. Do, do you do you agree with me about that? I agree that that might be the case. I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. I imagine the Roman pontiff is taking a salary. Do you? Yeah, I do. I don't. That's just my read of Francis. I don't. I don't imagine he is. All right. I imagine uh, Benedict XVI was taking a salary. The man has needs. That's very possible. I, no, I, I, I can, what does he do? He wants but, to buy a book. What does he do? He says, on the Pope, give me that book. <laughs> Perhaps. But Benedict XVI, for example, was a cigarette smoker. Do you really yeah. think he would have felt good about it, about putting into the budget of the Roman Curia a carton of Marlboro Lights a month or something? No, probably not. But I, I mean, again, maybe for, now that you're saying, I mean, Francis likes to do these little things where he goes on walkabout and like goes to the opticians yeah, and stuff like exactly. that. So I, I, I'm sure you're right. I imagine he probably like does many a- 80-something-year-olds, he even has something called a checkbook, which I don't have one, but I know that many old You people, don't? What would I need a checkbook for? I use my checkbook to pay taxes. Yeah, we have checks in our house in case we need to write a check, but I'm not walking around with a checkbook like an 86 Oh, no, I don't walk around with it. It's in my I'm desk, and I only paying, use it to pay the government. The grocery store for with a check. No, I no. No, that would be silly. Um, so, yeah, no, I think you're right. Pope Francis probably does have... Um, does have that, and th- those are distinct from the sort of private discretionary funds of but the bishop. But that's not what overall. you're talking about here. Yeah, I'm talking about something different. Um, you know, because there are Peter's Pence is the global collection that everyone knows about that goes to support the work of the Holy Father, more or less. However, the Holy Father mm-hmm. chooses to define it, um, although it's not always marketed that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also has sort of private discretionary accounts that he can do whatever he wants with as pope. And so this is the money that got bound up in a lot of this stuff. Anyway, but the, the IOR's lawyers made a perfectly clear, concise document and fact-based case saying there was this money. This is how the money was used. These are the investments that were made. Here's the law that governs investments in Vatican City and for Dicasters of the Roman Curia and for the Secretary of State. Now, Cardinal Betchew, can you please just show us your authorization to do any of this? Yeah. And he couldn't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that simple. That's how you prosecute a case like this. It's not complicated. You yeah. say, here's the law. Here's what we can prove with documents and with witness testimony yeah. that you did. Here's what you say you did. And you say it was all all right. So just please show us the piece of paper where the Pope says you could do it. 
Yeah. It's, it, it's not complicated. Yeah. It, I mean, it was, you know, for me, who's been, you know, banging my head against my desk every time, you know, you see these sort of long pseudo Shakespearean, you know, backs and forths in the courtroom arguing in emotive and flowery imagery and terms, but, you know, light on substance. Like it was, this was just wonderful. It was, it was compact. It was forensic. It was to the point. Mm-hmm. It highlighted the law. It was very clear in what it was at, what it was accusing the defense of. And it was very clear in what it wanted in return. It, it was a breath of fresh air. Now, here's an interesting thing. I was talking to a friend of mine in Rome Close to the case. this morning. Uh, let's say intimately bound up in the world of Vatican <laughs> finances. Okay. And he told me, he said, isn't it interesting that the IOR are the ones making this case and that they, they included particularly this argument that amongst the people injured by these actions, of course, is the IOR, is the Secretary of State itself, is the Church, is the Curious, the Holy See, but also the person of the Pope, first and foremost, has been damaged by all of this. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a self-evidently coherent thing to say, you know, this this wasn't some cases the Pope's money that was being played with and there was no authorization to do it. I said, no, 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 no. It's interesting because, and I think there's been some similar remarks been made overnight in in some Roman newspapers. I think, was it Corriere del Sera and possibly Massagero had sort of advanced this line of things. said, no, Jim Franco Mami, the director of the IOR and Pope Francis go way back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's been in, you know, he helped, I think I I was told this morning, I haven't established this. So this is just what I'm told. This is not reporting. This is just in the ether around the case and what I'm being told. Yeah, you're not reporting this. You're just you're just saying a person told you. You haven't verified yeah, it. They actually go back and that he, you know, mommy had been an advisor to Francis even before his pope and sort of had helped with financial stuff in the Archdiocese of Buenos Aires and things like that. And that this is mommy is making the pope's case that mommy is going in there. I mean, he's not personally going, it's their legal team, but saying the IOR case is the Pope's case. Uh-huh. The IOR case is the Pope saying, bet you's guilty. Yeah. The IOR is articulating in a sort of sock, legal sock puppety way, how the Pope feels he's been personally robbed by all mm. of this, which is interesting. Awesome. I don't know to what extent I, I buy that. I mean, it doesn't strike me as the most obvious explanation for for how good the presentation was, um, you know, everyone likes a everyone likes a narrative where Pope Francis is in the middle of it or at the end of it. That's you know, that's, that's how we are. That's how that's how you sell newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I mean, that, that's, that's possible. As I said, I, I'm not aware of the of this apparently long history between the Pope and Gianfranco Mami. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, but even if it is true, I, I don't know that I still leap to the conclusion that the IOR case is is a deliberate and authorized proxy for the Pope sort of making his own case for how he feels he's been swindled by all of this. I I think the more obvious case to be made is that the IOR are the ones who detected this whole thing in the first place. They filed the first complaint. They had to swim upstream against um, the the AIF, now the ASIF, the Vatican's financial watchdog, the leadership of which is on trial for also being corrupt in the midst of all of this, you know, they had to, you know, they they had to swim upstream against all of this stuff to, to get this investigation started in the first place and take it to Pope Francis and say, we don't know who to complain to. Everyone we say this, there's some illegal stuff going on here, says, no, it'll be fine. Just just sign the papers. 
And they're also the most credible Vatican financial institution left. Or not even left. Like yeah. they're the only ones that have become credible. They used to be, you know, everyone knows about the IOR, the sort of quote unquote Vatican Bank. And, you know, they they're they're the institution that brought us such, you know, cultural stereotypes of Vatican financial corruption as the Godfather Part Three. Um yeah. but you know, under under Mami and the president of the bank, Jean-Baptiste de Franzou, and actually under his predecessor, um, Giorgio Torrio Tedeschi, um, they've been doing a lot of work cleaning that place up. The previous director of the of the IORs in jail, um, you know, they've prosecuted their own previous officers and stuff. They've been clawing back money out of corruption trials. They passed the last money vol inspection from the Council of Europe with flying colors. You know, they're they're good at this. They're serious about this. Yeah. And they're doing it from, you know, not some sort of, you know, quasi-spiritualized, oh, well, you know, we have a, a moral obligation to see that the money of the church is put to the purposes of the church, however we define that, which, you know, listening to some of these guys talk, not least Cardinal Betchew, is kind of a very Nixonian approach to you know, what's good for the church is what I say is good for the church. And therefore, you know, yeah, you have yeah, to do yeah. what I say. Um, but, you know, the the IOR guys, these are all laymen. And they're all laymen from the banking industry. From the banking going, no. industry with all this experience. Yeah. Yeah. These, are, these are the rules. You follow the rules and you make a profit. That's yeah. it. Totally. And I mean, it's exactly the kind of hard-nosed stuff that Cardinal Pell used to go in for. But I mean, they're just good at this. So I'm not surprised that their lawyers are making a good prosecution. The reasonable like case, yeah. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Th- if anyone was gonna, it was gonna be them. Yeah. Um. So I. That's what happened this week, and I find that delightful. But I've now been monologuing, and I apologize. No, it's totally fine. I find it delightful as well. Where, 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 what do you think? How do you think the judges will respond to that argument? I. I, I don't know. I. I'm glad that they did it. There's here's an interesting thing. Um, I was purchasing, or ordering, I should say, um the latest edition of Dorito Pinale Canonico, mm-hmm. um, which is published by the um, Vatican, Vatican's own publishing house. And because um, I like canon law and I like penal law and canon law and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's what I'm into. And it's always got some very interesting contributing scholars to it. You know, the big brass at the Pontifical Commission for Legislative Texts usually contribute. They did in this one. Um, but I couldn't help but notice that in the second half of the book, the sort of second section of this edition, um, was an article entitled simply The Presumption of Innocence. And its author was one Giuseppe Pignatone. That's interesting. Yes. And the subtitle is Innocence and Proving to the Contrary, the Presumption huh. of Non-Culpability in the huh. in the Italian Law. And I thought, well, that's a timely contribution from the chief judge in the financial trial to a canonical publication coming out of the Vatican. Yeah. Go figure. Um, so how are the judges going to respond to all this? We won't know until we get a final verdict. Uh, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if, I mean, because the other thing is Pinatona, the chief judge in this trial, and Didi, the prosecutor, are, are well known to one another from the Italian um, civil sphere uh in his previous job before he was prosecutor for public prosecutor for the vatican didi was a mob lawyer he represented mafia dons from the drangheta and um pinatoni was a public prosecutor trying to put him in jail 
Yeah. <laughs> so these guys know each other. They don't particularly care for each other. And it wouldn't surprise me that if it was on Didi's argumentation alone, that Pinatone wouldn't just turn around and say, well, you haven't proven the case. Yeah, that's right. I think that's absolutely right. You know, there might be all the evidence in the world here, but you haven't made the argument. So I'm I'm glad that there are some lawyers in there actually making the argument. And yeah. maybe that'll be enough. We'll see. I mean, it would be a really hilarious irony if because I don't know how the how the verdict will come down when it comes down. If you know, because there is this conflation of the civil lawsuits and the criminal trial. Yeah. I think it would be hilarious if, you know, Pena Tony issued a ruling that basically said, well, on the subject of all of the criminal prosecutions for these people, we find the case has not been proven. However, on exactly the same charges in the case of the civil lawsuit, we find them all guilty and find them <laughs> hundreds of millions of euros or whatever. And I, I mean, that's a possibility, I guess. I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Huh. We've got more to talk about with regard to all this, but we're going to have to do it after a word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by Decided Excellence Catholic Media. Decided Excellence Catholic Media, Ed, is a print company that specializes in community and parish magazines. And there are parishes all over this country which have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazines. Parishioners love them. The magazine communicates the good works of the parish, strengthens community, and has even brought parishioners back to Mass. But Ed, what does a parish magazine offer that a bulletin or a social media presence simply does not? Well, I mean, first of all, physical media is just, is fun. We we do, you know, online media. It's it's what we do. The pillar isn't a print thing. But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a romantic and I believe in the magic of print media. If the pillar could be a print magazine every week, I'd. I'd do it. And that's what a parish magazine offers that an online presence can't, is it's something you put in your hand. And what does that mean? Practically, it means that you can reach 100% of your registered parishioners. You can mail it to them. You can send it to everyone who lives in the territory of a parish. You're not just dependent on those who attend mass and remember to grab a bulletin or the people who follow your parish on social media. And you don't have to fit what it is you want to promote about the parish, what it is you want to say to the people in the parish you know, to meet SEO optimization requirements or, you know, fit the character limit for a Facebook post or whatever else. And I mean, you can reach non-registered people living in the parish. You can reach non-practicing Catholics. You know, it is, it's a, it's a physical form of evangelization that you can do. Yeah, that is absolutely right, my friend. Uh, Each magazine features a family from the parish and can also highlight parish ministries. The parish can produce its own evangelization and catechesis content, or it can supplement that content from an extensive Decided Excellence Catholic Media library with articles from Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and much, much more. The editorial and design teams down there at Decided Excellence Catholic Media will guide you through the publication process each month and help ensure that the content is professional and attractive. And here's the really cool thing. The Decided Excellence production team will train a parish representative to organize content, which is sent to a staff of professional designers and editors. The production team ensures that the magazine is beautiful and high in quality. So pastors, why are you still listening to this ad? Open up a browser on your phone and go to decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. It's time for you to get a Decided Excellence Catholic Media parish magazine of your own. It will make your parish life, uh, your communication with your parishioners so much richer than it is right now, so much more engaging. You'll get something into their homes and into their hands that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, Talk to your parish staff and do what you can. Uh, If you're not a pastor, talk to your priest, talk to your fellow parishioners about bringing a parish magazine to your parish today. It's time. Decided Excellence Catholic Media, friend of the show. It's decidedly excellent. It's time to do it. 
decidedexcellence.com slash parish. And we're back, Ed, and I am bringing it. You, you are. You <laughs> right. always do. Yeah. Uh, I think that was a decidedly excellent commercial break. I learned a lot. You know, if I were, and I'm not, but if I were um, the brand manager or the marketing manager for a company that had the word excellent in its, uh, in its title or excellence or anything connected to excellence, I would definitely lean into a kind of Bill and Ted theme for marketing. I'm not telling anybody what to do or how to do it, but I myself would probably lean hard into a Bill and Ted kind of a, kind of a, a, a vibe. I think that'd be a good idea. I don't, how many people, like, what is the, I, has Bill and Ted survived the generation? Have they managed to cross the generational divide? Yeah, did you see Bill and Ted, um, did you see Bill and Ted face the music? Is that the new one they did? Yeah. No, I didn't because I thought it would, it would make me sad. Oh, it came out um, in August of 2020. So, you know. Uh, I thought it was bit. just going to be like when they did another Indiana Jones or another Star Wars or another Wall Street or any of the great things they made in the 80s. I just, whenever they turn, I'm just like, oh, now I feel sad. First of all, Bill and Ted, I believe was, I believe that Bill and Ted's excellent, oh, excellent, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure was made in 1989. You're correct. Bill and Ted's bogus journey was made in the 90s, 1991. But Bill and Ted faced the music. I, I mean, it was, it was just fun, you know, and it, and we, it was August of 2020. We needed just a fun movie about traveling all over the place with hardly any concerns whatsoever. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Maybe I'll give it a look then. Cause like I said, I just, I looked at it went no hard pass. Now That's I don't gonna... know how it holds up. I don't know if it was just the time, the moment, but was it people of our age and slightly older that were watching this movie? Like, do the kids know who Bill and Ted are? Or they're like, oh, is I that that grandpa movie that you people like and always keep going? Yeah, know. excellent. We, man. I don't know. I mean, and very frankly, I don't care at all. Um, we are at the we are at the peak of our media um, uh, of our we're at the peak of our media lives. And here's what I mean: right now, Hollywood studios and music production companies and television executives all know the same thing, which is that we are at the zenith of our disposable income era. We are. In Am our I? 40s, no, we don't have any disposable income. I'm not saying we have any disposable income. I was about to say, if this, is, if this is as good as it gets, I need to stop working so hard because I'm not, I'm not saying this is not worth it. we have disposable income. I'm saying people of our age bracket are at their target consumer mode, which means it is time to target things very specifically at us. We're going to start hearing like um, uh, Nirvana and Foo Fighter, Muzak and Target pretty soon if we aren't already because we're just at the age where – catering to our youthful tastes is an extremely profitable idea i can for live with example that. more dave Grohl in public spaces is good for example last week when we opened with thundercats um yeah we heard from a lot of people who were you know not young people but people who said oh yeah i loved hearing that thundercats music i upped my subscription now that w that was not sort of planning on our part but um we couldn't have planned it better well i mean we we I don't want to make the main show about the bonus show, but um, I mean it can be just observed as a scientific fact that the Thundercats theme song is amazing. It's just amazing music. Like you can't not you you cannot listen to that and not get amped up. It's, yeah. you know Thundercats it's, Thundercats does whatever a Thundercat. Some some forty year old dad humor there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ed. Uh, you know what we've got to talk about now. Uh, Vatican finances. Yeah. You know what we've got to talk about now? 
You want to talk about merging dioceses. Well, I do. I do want to talk about that. So I, I do. Uh, well, no, I want to talk about what may be a Holy See, what might be a Vatican approach to uh, solving a vexing problem, which is, um, you know, how do you solve a problem like Monfortin? Uh, the uh, Holy See this morning announced um, that Bishop Jeff, I want to say Jeff. Jeez, I've been writing about this guy for two days. It's just got a certain character of forgettability. Jeff Monfortin. You know the Jeffrey, other thing? please. I think he goes by Jeff. Ah, he, maybe he does, but I mean, he's still a bishop and we can we can observe the formalities. Okay. I've warned you about this before, JD. You have a tendency to to address bishops by their sort of um in our copy cognomen. Pardon? Like in our copy? In our copy and, you know, you, you've I've heard you refer, you know, oh, Mike or you know, it's like you know, we we gotta we gotta observe the niceties. It's important. Everyone right now is trying to figure out what bishop I might refer to as Mike. Well, I just picked that name at random because I didn't want to name any of the two or three that came to mind because that would be too obvious. I would never I would never drop an actual hint about bishops that you talk to. Yeah, I don't. I can only. Th- we should have a trivia ca- game called Bishops Named Mike because I can only think of one American active diocesan bishop named Mike. Two. I can think of two. Sis and. Oh, well, three then. Isn't Bishop Burbage's first name Michael? Yes, it is. Isn't Bishop Olson's first name Michael? Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, that's right. So it's three. That's three. Any other mics out there? I don't know. We'll find out. Anyway, sorry. I, I distracted you. No, you... no. This is important, Ed. This is really important. I do. If you're a bishop named Michael, please write to us. <laughs> bishop and named Michael, please. Oh, there's, a, there's an auxiliary. Oh, Bishop Fisher of uh, Buffalo. Bishop mm-hmm. Michael Fisher. And then yeah. there's an auxiliary in St. Paul in Minneapolis named Michael Eisen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this, I think we're getting there. We're, we're, we've now, we're now up to five. This is going to turn into a Brendan statistical analysis of oh, most man. common Actually, first names. common Episcopal names would be a super fun one. Do you, yeah, that, I, I'm going to ask Brendan to do that, but we're up to five mics at least. Oh, yeah. Mulvey. Is Mulvey still the Bishop of Corpus Christi? Yes, right? Yeah, I think so. He's a mic. We're up to six mics. Michael might actually be, I bet, I would bet that James or John is the most common Episcopal name. I think John would be up there, but I don't know. I think Michael's, I would have put Michael as a top three name by instinct. How many blazes are there? Are there any? There's just, oh, the one. Joseph, there might be a couple of Joseph. So there's Tobin. Okay, we got to Yes. This is getting out of hand. It's getting Tobin out of hand. This is crazy. So maybe Tobin and Strickland are the only are, are the they're the two Josephs who most easily come to mind. Yes. Okay. Getting back to Bishop Montfort. Can, can we just wants. note that we are going to have Brendan do this? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I am committed as an editorial decision. I am committed to. Okay. Let's a, just make sure people want. It. If you want this, let us know. Oh, it's it's happening now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair. Okay. All right. This morning, the Holy See announced that Bishop Jeffrey Monfortin uh, had uh, had been reassigned from his position as the diocesan bishop of the Diocese of Steubenville, Ohio, to become an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese of Detroit. That announcement came after a very tumultuous year or several years for the Diocese of Steubenville. You will well remember the controversy over the prospect of merging the Diocese of Steubenville last year. You you might also, if you're an active pillar reader, remember that Bishop um, Monfortin has been the subject of two Vosestis investigations, and that Bishop Monfortin is also accused of 
mishandling uh, a, a, a case of um, clerical sexual abuse of a, of a minor. You'll also recall that during Bishop Monfortin's tenure as Bishop of the Diocese of Steubenville, the bishop's vicar general and diocesan finance officer were indicted and sentenced uh, and pl- found pled guilty and sentenced uh, for embezzlement after it was found that each of them had stolen about $300,000 from the diocese, with the vicar general, I believe, spending his money on clothing and flying lessons. Uh, you might also recall... Which, if I may, of all of the things that I've heard of embezzled church funds being spent on, flying lessons is the first one where I'm kind of like... Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Who would yeah I like that. Yeah. That's, exactly. You know that that's way better than the sort of normal nonsense that you get. It's yeah. like oh, it's, you know, yeah. Flying lessons. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. No. Totally. Totally valid. Uh, you'll also recall that uh, during the tenure of Bishop Montfortin in the Diocese of Steubenville. The bishop oversaw a cathedral renovation project in which more than $1 million was spent on developing a a, a piece of property which came to be called Cathedral Plaza, while the actual diocesan cathedral was shuttered, uh, kind of fell into ruin, and the cathedral cathedral renovation project was eventually scrapped. Well, and that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but that cathedral development project and the loans and everything else that was being required, raising the funds to build this new cathedral, this is all taking place while Bishop Montfortin was actively working to merge the diocese out of existence. Not all of it. During the time in which Bishop Montfortin was planning without telling his presbyterate for the diocese to be merged into the neighboring diocese of Columbus, he applied for and received a $50,000 grant from Catholic Extension, um, which would allow him to do a feasibility study for a capital campaign related to the cathedral renovation project. All the while knowing that the church would not, if his plan were accomplished, be for very long the cathedral, given his intention to see the diocese suffer an extinctive merger. Well, that doesn't sound like great management to me. Well, that was the charge of the presbyter of the Diocese of Steubenville, who, upon learning last year that the diocese was um, in the pipeline to be merged with the neighboring diocese of Columbus, said that it really wasn't fair to consider the prospect for merging the diocese when it had suffered from what was under their perspective at that point, 13 years of significant mismanagement. And so they uh, urged the USCCB, who has a consultative vote in the process of merging, to kind of shelve the, the merger, the anticipated merger. Uh, and, uh, and they hoped, they expressed to us that they hoped that there would be an opportunity for the diocese to be led by someone who they would regard as a more competent manager before such time as a decision would be made. Yes. It is, I think, fair to say that Bishop Monfortin has had a rocky tenure as Bishop of Steubenville. I think it would, but what to your mind, I mean, this is, so that, that again is, is prologue. Um, so he's been, he's been, you said reassigned, but you can't reassign a diocesan bishop. A bishop, a diocesan bishop can be transferred if he consents to the transfer. I was going to say, he's got to, he's got to agree to it. He's got to resign effectively. Yeah, right. He does. But I think, so I think that what happened here, and this is why I think this is very interesting is I think um, Bishop Monfortin was proven. Um, the 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 <laughs> the dicastery for bishops also ordered last year what they called a health audit, or what the diocese of at least called a health audit, uh, an external financial audit of the diocese's financial viability, which it said was um, um, under consideration for purposes of considering the merger. And I think that's actually true. But at the same time, which likely brought to light Bishop Monfortin's administrative. Um, aptitude or ineptitude, depending upon, of course, upon the results, which have not been re- released. Uh, much to, to, to my surprise, because when Bishop Monfortin announced the diocesan health audit, he told K- 
Catholics of the diocese that the results of the study would speak for itself. However, if they're doing any speaking, it's only um, in the office of the dicastery for bishops because the results of that uh, of that audit are not available to uh, uh, to anyone else. Well, are the results not that he's been busted down to auxiliary bishop? Well, so that's what's really interesting here is Bishop Bunford has not given a reason for his um, his transfer to which he would have assented to become the auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Detroit. But it seems to me rather clear that this was a decision made by the Holy See in response to kind of the mounting pile of Bishop um, of Bishop Monfortin's administrative um, ineptitude. And that's, it's a very rare thing. I can't think of a time in the United States when a diocesan bishop has become an auxiliary bishop previously. Now, if you'll remember, Detroit a couple of years ago got a, a, a member of the Vatican Diplomatic Corps, an archbishop who had been a nuncio who became a D- Detroit um, archbishop and then subsequently stepped down from ministry under allegations of sexual misconduct. But um, I can't think of a time when a diocesan bishop has become not a coadjutor, as did, for example, Archbishop Achen or Archbishop Hebda, but um, but merely um, a spare pair of hands. Yeah, an auxiliary bishop. And and so I find myself wondering: Is this part of Rome's approach? Rome seems to be in this place now where, um, you know, post sort of 2018, where there's a mechanism for investigation, Vosestis, and there have been two Vosestis investigations against Bishop Monforton. And there is more, I think, public accountability for Episcopal conduct and misconduct since 2018. And, you know, I think that's what led to the diocesan health audit. But Rome seems to be in this unusual position where on the one hand, more things are being investigated, but on the other hand, we don't know the results of those Vosestises. We don't know the results of the financial audit. And we don't. We can only sort of glean or extrapolate that Bishop Monfortin was judged probably, you know, seemingly not suited to govern a diocese, but perfectly fit for ministry and even for a kind of leadership ministry in the Archdiocese of Detroit. I have a question. How old is Bishop Monfortin? 60, which is really young. I mean, he's got... Is that possibly like... Because it seems to me, and maybe it was always well, he started as a diocesan bishop in his forties in Stumenville. Right, and again, Stumenville is so, a very small diocese, and it probably will be merged. But um, but he started as a diocesan bishop in his forties. Right. So I guess my question would be this: Is it possible also that as um, as episcopal accountability becomes um, a more settled reality in the life of the church? Is it possible? But you know, the the general mode of um, action from the Holy See remains to ask the guy to resign uh, rather than to you know discipline them. If, I'm not saying that Mountain Fortin's case merited you know sort of penal removal from office or anything like that, but I can think of other cases where bishops have been allowed the option or encouraged to resign rather than be on the receiving end of you know an actual disciplinary privation of office. Uh, is in, is is Mount Fortin a sort of template for a new thing, which is the as as this stuff happens more and more, there are just too many bishops without dioceses wandering around in early retirement, and you need to you know you need to establish a new par- a, a new pattern of like well okay if if you don't work out as a diocesan bishop, you can actually go down and play triple A ball again. Well, I don't know. I mean, it would be great actually if Mount Fortin. I mean, the the best thing of all would be if Mount Fortin was taken as permission for bishops who find themselves unable to govern their diocese, um, free to ask the nuncio for assignment as an auxiliary bishop. Like, imagine if if Monfortin was perceived not only as something, Monfortin's, uh, you know, um, move was perceived not only as something like uh, a punitive measure, which was humiliating, 
but as a kind of um, just a mere sort of desire in the life of the church to um, to say this is not where my gifts lie. Yeah, right. Exactly. To 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 sort of organize folks and people according to their actual aptitudes. Well, and I find it difficult to believe that Bishop Mount Fortin feels that he was overmatched by the office of diocesan bishop because he was the one who was shouting loud and proud that he was setting the he was the template, he was right when he was planning the merger. Yeah. He said he wanted his merger process to be a template for the whole of the United States. So yeah, I'm going to set an example ago. for dioceses across the United States and the world on how to secretly and without consulting my faithful or clergy plot to suppress the diocese. Well, that is what he said. I mean, I want to come back to the merger because I, I think the merger is important to discuss on its own merits. But Bishop Monfortin did say that his approach to the merger, which was highly contested and highly controversial, would be, quote, a template for other dioceses in the United States and further afield. And so at least a year ago, I think he had a great deal of confidence. You've got to imagine, though, Ed, if um, in the year that followed, your priests pushed back sufficiently through the use, you know, through engagement with the media, but also, you know, your, your priests pushed back, the media investigates, um, the USCCB effectively withdraws your consultative vote if that wouldn't sort of um, diminish your optimism or enthusiasm about your own approach. And then subsequently, you find yourself um, the subject of two Vosestis investigations and a financial audit by the Holy See. I mean, at the end of that, you might yourself come to the point where you say, I'm not so sure that I have that governing this diocese is working out for me. That may that may well be the case. I don't know Bishop Montfortin at all. I don't have any personal Heck experience. Of a nice guy. Is he? Well, then that case, that may well be. I was going to say, I can think of other individuals who, when confronted with those circumstances, would probably, it wouldn't dent their self-confidence even slightly. Um, <laughs> but I, I I take your point that that's probably not true of Bishop Mountfortin, and that's great. And if if indeed he's um, he feels like, you know what, I just want to get back to doing priest and bishop stuff, and I don't want to. I don't want to govern a diocese. This is not where my talents lie. This is not how I can best serve the church and the people of God. Then that's that's great and good for him. I think that's that that's praiseworthy. In fact, if if that's how this has come about, I mean, of course we don't know because we never know. Because why would why would anyone at the Holy See or or anywhere down from that possibly ever make a public explanation for why something happens in the life of the church? That you know, people resign, people move, people. You know, move up, down, sides, but nary a reason, a reason ever given because, you know, then people might know what's going on and heaven forfend. Um, so if that is what has gone on here, that's, you know, I think that's, as I say, praiseworthy on the part of Bishop Mount Fortin because we should all strive to, you know, serve the church in the, in the best way we can in the role best suited to, to our abilities. And, and it would require extraordinary humility um, to, to recognize in yourself. Um, and the role you were in, that maybe this is not the best fit for you. Uh, so if that's the case, you know, as I say, great for Bishop Bond Fortnite. That's deeply impressive. I, I wish we could say for sure that that's what had happened because, you know, that would yeah. be great, but we can't. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah okay, I, but, I, I mean, the, let's be, let's talk, let's talk a little bit but more. I mean, about I think that's a good point because. Montfortin's transfer, although not gaining the kind of notoriety of Sticka's removal or resignation or Hepner's removal, I mean resignation or, um, you know, is of the same kind. A person who is under several investigations suddenly, uh, you know, finds they have a job transfer, but it's a different job transfer. But Montfortin's is, you know, when Hepner resigned or when Sticka resigned, you could ex- you could glean from that and from reporting and, and, you know, what was happening. Okay, these guys were found to have been have 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 failed in in their leadership in one way or another. Well, they 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 were resigned and sentenced to a life of golf. Yeah, but they we, weren't given another job. Right, 
whereas Montfortin is sentenced to a life of golf plus the confirmation circuit. Um, but it's hard well, to know. I, do we quite, know that? Is he is he going to have a sort of pastoral? Is he going to function as a sort of dean in? They haven't. The Archdiocese of Detroit hasn't said what his office will be. Now you know. It would be super interesting to ask Archbishop Vigneron about this. In fact, I think I might. What does the Code of Canon Law and say that uh, office say that a um, an, auxil- uh, uh, an auxiliary bishop should have? Uh, office. He should, he should be at least a vicar, vicar general or an Episcopal vicar. Yeah, he should be at least a vicar. He should be at least an Episcopal vicar, having a, having you know specific oversight and and um, and um, uh, vicarious authority over some particular uh, area of the diocese. It would be interesting to find out how Archbishop Vigneron intends to assign his new auxiliary bishop, Bishop Monfortin. And and only from that, and this is what's frustrating, is only from that can we sort of read the tea leaves. Like, I'm kind of being a little bit flip here, but only from that can we read the tea leaves to sort of surmise, what does this mean? Was Bishop Monfortin investigated for those things, found not to have committed the kinds of misconduct he was accused of in the Vos Estesis, found to have governed the finances according to his abilities, but you know, perhaps ineptly, but with integrity, and therefore, but having lost the confidence of the diocese, and so he's given this, or was Bishop Monfortin found, you know, were those things inconclusive, or were they found that he had been negligent in some way? We don't know. And so the the, the frustrating part is we're left to do this kind of tea reading of like, well, what will Vigneron assign him to? And what was his tone of voice when he was at, and these kinds of things. And, and that's not, I mean, at the end of the day, that's not the kind of transparency that was promised. And so, you know, we don't know whether this Vigneron reassignment, whether he got tired and got burnt out and said, I don't want to do this anymore, which I think is probably a pretty likely scenario, or whether he, you know, the Holy See decided that this was an appropriate way to respond to perhaps negatively conclusive Vos Estes investigations. And I think that given what we've learned about Vos Estes investigations and the, the importance of sort of like accountability on those, it, it's reasonable to think that the church ought give more than tea leaf indications of what's happening on these things. Isn't it? You will have a Pope tell you the 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 last super secret secret of Fatima before you will get the Holy See discussing the results of a Vos Estes investigation. I know. It, just, it ain't going to happen. Whatever I mean, is happening. It should be a scandal. It should be outrageous. Yeah, whatever is happening with Montfort, and I think that's the takeaway is here's another case where something is happening with a Vos Estes guy, in this case, a two Vos Estes investigation guy, and we're left to guess, you know, to say, oh, maybe, maybe he got tired or maybe... You did it, or maybe you didn't do it, but the diocese is mad at you know, like that. How is anyone supposed to have certitude about how to respond if that's what is given? Right, but at a certain point, it becomes apparent. I know the point is that people can't have certitude; they don't want you to have certitude. The Vatican actively is opposed to you. the faithful having clarity about what goes on with their bishops. They don't like it. I keep coming back to you know Bishop Cousins going to. Um, Crookston after the resignation, so to speak, of Bishop Hepner, and saying then, and to his presbyterate, and subsequently to that, the Diocese of Crookston is not afraid of the truth. And um, how refreshing and edifying that is, how encouraging that is, how much that that is, I think probably for many Catholics, a sign of hope, but um, how much that still stands out as being something unusual, and whatever the reason for Bishop Jeffrey Munfortin's um, transfer is it's the same kind of thing and that pattern you know is being cemented 
rather than um, rather than possibly being overcome. I would just pick up on one thing you said, which is that you you mentioned Bishop Cousins' arrival in Crookston and saying in this diocese we're not afraid of the truth, and I remember that, and it was beautifully said and said with conviction. And I have I can think of absolutely no examples to the contrary that that is not the case in the diocese of Crookston now. Um, but that statement is not unique. Uh, I remember Cardinal Wilton Gregory saying on his arrival in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., hot on the heels of the the Whirl and McCarrick Yeah, I'll always tell you the truth. Plane crash. Coming, yeah. um, I remember Wilton Gregory saying with, with great sincerity and conviction, I will always tell you the truth. And followed up immediately with the question of, well, may we have McCarrick's financial records, please, and some honest accounting of where the money went and to whom? And here we are four years later? Well, I'm so glad you raised that, and I want to tell you why. I, I'm so glad you raised that because it raises what I think is an important point, namely this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my presumption is that we have a right to know the truth about these things, and we really don't. We don't have a right to know the truth about everything. And there is an importance to, to confidentiality in the life of the church as in any other institution. And maybe the reason why a bishop gets moved from the diocesan bishop of Steubenville to the auxiliary bishop of Detroit, maybe we don't have a right to know it. You know, I, I, my intuition says that, um, tran my intuition genuinely says that transparency builds trust and trust is helpful to the proclamation of the gospel and the building of the kingdom. But I, I'm very open to the idea of being pushed back that, you know, that I think what makes it difficult, like, I don't think if any bishop sort of being moved, it's like, well, we get to know all the backstory here. But, um, and so I'm very open to the idea that we don't have the right to know the truth about these things. But at the same time, the fact that the last year and a half or even more of Bishop Monfortin's tenure in Steubenville was riddled with real problems. The fact that he had protesters outside of his chancery over the merger, which we still haven't talked about the merger, but out of his chancery over the merger suggests to me that there does need to be some resolution to the woundedness that came from um, the various scandals of the Vosestes and these other things. I don't think that there's a right to know everything. There's no Freedom of Information Act in the church, and I don't believe there should be. But um, the, it, I agree with everything you say about the, the, the general instinct of transparency is good for the kingdom. It's good for the society of the church. It's good for the faithful. It's good for the relationship between the faithful and the hierarchy. You know, I agree with all of that. But at a more basic human level, if you, if you want to look at it this way, it's transactional. You know, you have the, 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 the dicastery for bishops, the secretary of state, the USCCB, the hierarchy, at whatever level, has the right to say, we're not telling. We're not talking about that. We hopefully won't lie to your face, but we're not going to answer questions. And we don't believe the faithful are entitled, entitled to know. And again, like you, I'm willing to accept that in some cases that may actually be for the true and the good. That, you know, there's a there's a compelling interest in a minority of cases. Why the full details and backstory should be made known, I can accept that. But the thing is, if you are reflexively, if you reflexively don't engage and say, no, there's no right to know, and so we're not talking about it. You don't get to know why this bishop has resigned. You don't get to know why this bishop has been moved. You don't get to know how these Vosestes investigations were resolved. Fine, but the the natural consequence of that is, I don't want to hear people. 
when another survey comes out that says none of the priests and faithful trust their bishops. <laughs> yeah, like that's it is the that, thing that that's, that's it, yeah. one plus one equals two. I, I'm sorry, we have arrived at a place in the church globally at this point because the, you know this is this started off in 2018 in earnest with McCarrick and then Chile, but you know it's in Germany and it's in Switzerland and it's God is it in France right now, um, and it's in Rome too. It, the Love hierarchy me. no longer has a presumption of trust mm-hmm. from the faithful, and that's a hole that it dug for itself, and. You know, they, we're not a democracy. The hierarchy of the church is not and should not be turned upside down. I don't believe that for a minute. But as a simple mechanical reality of a human society, which the church is in part, you don't get to say there is no right to an explanation and then expect people, given everything we've been through in recent years, to have any reaction to that other than suspicion. So I agree with you to, I agree with you to a large extent. I think the only thing I would say is that there is a danger. I, I agree with you. And I, I, I think that... Um, Again, I'm not arguing for total transparency. I'm not arguing for FOIA in the church. I'm just saying that's a reality. I do think that um, you know this kind of thing where a bishop has these various scandals attached to him and then he's sort of transferred to become the auxiliary bishop in another place without any explanation. Yeah, it does breed kind of mistrust or cynicism. And I do think that the that the hierarchy of the church should be more forthcoming about those kinds of things. And I'm edified by bishops who are forthcoming. I think all that, and at the same time, I guess my only other caveat to that is at the same time, I think very often we say and others say, well, you know, if people don't trust the church and priests say they don't trust their bishops and this and that, you know, that's what the bishops had that coming to them and that's it. And I, I, I think that is, you know, um, there is a... Um, a causal relationship there. I guess the only thing I would say is as long as we're going to say that and call for more transparency and, um, and call for more um, candor about what happens with the Vosestis investigation or these financial investigations or whatever, we have to, for our own sake, not, not even so much for the sake of the church, but for our own sake, we also, I think have to pray for the virtue of obedience and the virtue and gift of trust and docility um, to the Holy Spirit and faith in the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Because if we don't do those things at the same time that we're speaking sort of truthfully about the results of ambiguity, the danger is that the call for transparency or accountability or whatever will breed in us a kind of cynicism or skepticism that... um, hurts our own souls, right? So like, I don't want to lose my salvation or anyone else lose their salvation over what is probably the Sisyphusian stone of ecclesiastical accountability. And as much as I want to keep pushing the rock up the hill, I I have no idea if I'm using that metaphor, right? But as much as I want to keep pushing the rock up the hill, I also, if if I'm not accompanying that, I think with prayer for trust and obedience and um, faith, the dangers that I'll lose my own soul in the process to to a kind of bitterness or or to, or or resentment or cynicism or something like that. That's all I think I'm trying to get at. I will join you in praying for obedience and a spirit of docility and proper respect for um, the hierarchy and faithful presence and living within the church according to one's proper state. I I absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Trust? No, I'm not praying for that. Praying well, for should. praying for no praying for misplaced trust is naivete. No, but saying but, Lord make me naive. But I, the absence, no. of, but 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 the alternative, like um, praying for uh, or allowing to inculcate kind of reflexive reflexive mistrust. I, I, we need to judge each situation on its own merits, and we need to presume by trust. I think I mean we need to presume at least. We need to begin by presuming at least the good faith of the, of the, uh, you know, of other parties and things like that. Because, um, if we don't, the danger is a kind of, um, corrosive, reflexive antipathy that I don't think is healthy for us. I agree that corrosive and reflexive antipathy would be bad for us and bad for, well, bad for our own souls and it's bad for the church. And I don't want that. And again, I think, and I don't want you to have that. And I don't think you do have that, by the way. No, but you can love the church, and you can love the hierarchy, and you can love and pray for the whole of the hierarchy and individuals with it with whom you are frustrated or having or causing scandal even. But uh, sorry, buddy, I, I don't start from a position of trust. I don't. I, there's no story I write anymore that I start from – I mean, with a fair few exceptions where someone – and this happens – and this, again, this is important. And we were saying this last week when we were talking about that thing, that the the problem we have, I think, in a lot of the sort of conversational vernacular of the church, especially, not especially in the United States, but I'm thinking of the church in the United States, um, is we refer to the bishops, quote unquote. And that's unhelpful because yeah, yeah. when we speak of the bishops and what the bishops have done, first of all, we're very often talking about a period of four coming on five decades, um, which is three for coming on five generations of diocesan bishops, all of whom have behaved completely differently, both individually and as generational cohorts. So talking about quote unquote the bishops is is unhelpful in that in that sense. Um, but also bishops are different bishops are different ways. I yeah, I if um if there is a bishop, and there are several in the United States, including several, I would say, in an edifying way, who listen to this podcast from time to time. Um who do start when they tell me something from a position of reflexive trust on my part, a presumption of good intent and a presumption of um, uh, honesty. But, you know, they've earned it. They've earned it through their public ministry. They've earned it through proving themselves to be plain speakers that, you know, they don't, they don't lie to you. They don't look you in the eye and tell you something when they know the opposite is true. There are other bishops who, who don't enjoy that baseline presumption of good faith from me because they've lied to my face before. And so when a guy lies to my face, I don't trust him. I I get that. I just think, I I just think even in that, even in that, I I understand. I mean, I think they're, yeah. And I'm, and I'm glad we're talking about this. I want to talk about sort of mergers as a process, but I think this is way more important because I think this is where people go off the rails is they see something that isn't right. And they, they either, yeah, I mean, there may be people who say like, well, I trust that whatever the bishop said, they had good reason for it or, you know, they can become sort of, maybe this happens more often with sort of papal um, idolatry, the kind of papal idolatry, which is ultramontanism, like which whatever the Pope did, I'm I'm with, is necessarily correct because I'm a Catholic. You know, that's obviously not healthy, but neither is healthy like, oh, those bishops are the worst, you know, bishops are the worst, like, and, and just this attitude that like sort of is reflexively averse to obedience to or trust in the bishops. And that is happening, I think, for a lot of Catholics. So 
there's a there's a, a burgeoning anti-episcopalism, if not anti-clericalism. And I even know priests, sure. priests who are falling into a burgeoning kind of anti-episcopalism. Oh, and that is bad. And it's, it's unhealthy. That, it's unhealthy. It, it's, it's unhealthy, and it's a sign of a disordered ecclesiology. It's a sign of a disordered spirituality. It is a very, very bad thing. But again, I would say the antidote to that is not so much reflexive trust, but what I said at the beginning that you also suggested is an important thing to pray for, and which I agreed with you one should pray for, which is obedience and docility in the face of all of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's that's... nothing wrong with knowing your place in the church. In fact, <laughs> there's a lot right with it. Yeah, I think that's right. It doesn't mean that you're. It doesn't mean that you know the, the faithful are the are the peasantry who aren't allowed to have opinions and you know don't have rights. Yeah, in fact, on the contrary, people have the right and even at times the duty to make known their opinions to their people. Right. Yeah. But everything rightly ordered in the church, you you should have docility. You should have, um, by all means, obedience. You should you should. Oh, and love and serve the church with all of the in all of the ways that one ought to, and especially through her ministers, especially through the properly constituted hierarchy. I'm not an ecclesiological anarchist. Um, you know, I'm the first one to address a bishop who I know hates my guts and lies to my face. I'll be the first one to call him my lord, and you know, and rightly so, because you you can you can respect the office, you can obey the authority rightly constituted, and you can do all of that for love of the church. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you should pray for docility in the face of all that if it is, you know, if it if it's not easy to do. Yeah. That's right. But I I'm not gonna trust the guy, JD. A, a couple of weeks ago, when um Bishop uh um Joe Perry's retirement was accepted, and Bishop, you know, Bishop Perry, the Holy See announced that Bishop Perry's retirement was accepted. You and I talked to a guy. This guy really made me laugh because he called us up and he said, I know that Cardinal Supich got him out. I know that Cardinal Supich somehow plotted against him and drove him out. And uh, we've got to, you guys have got to find out what's going on here and everything. And it's like, buddy, Bishop Perry turned 75 a little while ago in April. So the the reflexive idea that what happened when Bishop Perry's resignation was accepted was that the Ponte was that, you know, Cardinal Supich was plotting against him. Although I find that very entertaining. Um, and I found that entire conversation very entertaining, as I think did you. There is a way in which one must I think be cautious about like seeing a sort of episcopal plot behind every tree, so to speak. You know what I mean? Oh, there's 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 no virtue to paranoia. Yeah, and, or or but I'm not. I don't even know if it's paranoia. I think it's just reflective, uh, or excuse me, reflexive um, suspicion. Is that paranoia? No, because paranoia is everyone's coming to get me. This is sort of just suspicion, like the presumption of bad will or bad faith. Uh, under any circumstance or action, I would agree that you shouldn't have. Would you agree that conversation was entertaining? I would. I mean, I would also note that. Um, I mean, if you want to, if you want to debate the merits of that particular example you gave, I. It's also silly to think that Cardinal Sewich would need to plot to, uh, to to force the retirement of his own auxiliary, who's seventy five years old. To, Right. I mean, for sure, it's a Cardinal. You could say that Cardinal Supic, if you wanted to phrase it in a more reasonable way, you could say Cardinal Supic, um will have will have not stood in the way of that happening, sitting I'm sure as he, he does stand on the, in the way of it happening. I'm sure that yeah. you know Bishop Perry and he probably are not, their bookshelves look very different, their theological paradigms look very different, their sacristies look very different, having as they do very different liturgical tastes. And I'm sure Cardinal Supic was not right. sort of saying, calling the Holy Father and saying, please. You know, let Joe stay for a couple more years. I really need him. I'm sure that's the case. But um, you know, there's a way in which there's a difference can... between the cardinalatial permissive will and active will. <laughs> <laughs> 
Amen. Amen. I think we just, I think um, with this, you know. Did we ever talk about the resignation of Bishop Perry on the show? Uh, I don't know. Well, I have. Yes, you know, we've gone way long over time. We've yeah. gone way long over time. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about Bishop Perry in the bonus. Episode. Maybe we are. Um, at the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, Ned and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. You're my podcasting partner at Condon. And we'll be back next week. But we'll also, uh, if you're a subscriber, stick around for the bonus episode.